Okay, you'll excuse my posture, but this is actually nearly church as well as the rabbinic tradition. The person teaching sat down, which in the early church also the bishop, when he would, he would teach sitting behind the holy table of the altar, and so would also the presbyters. Okay. The pulpit was only used to read scripture and make announcements at the end of the service. Uh, the first time the pulpit got used to, for preaching was John Chrysostom, because he was so short they couldn't see him in the back. That way, so he came out and would get onto the, uh, into the pulpit. Anyway, keep it on the time. Um, today's gospel, and I read two of them. I read the calling of Matthew from the tax office, because we're kind of celebrating uh, St. Matthew today, even though his feast day is not till the 16th, technically. But uh, when Me Metropolitan Maximus was our bishop, he would always come the weekend before so we could celebrate, etc., etc., knowing that weekdays it was difficult for people to come for a long period of time. So uh, that's why our habit is this uh, and so forth. But I want to I wanna, uh, just address mostly the, the, the parable today because it's very familiar, but there's a very telling thing about all this. We know this story, right? A lawyer, I, I love it, a lawyer comes to Jesus and he wants to justify himself, you know. Jesus gets all these guys that go, um, hey, I mean, I'm doing pretty good, you know, just let me know if I'm lacking anything. Like, I'm almost at the top, i am almost made it, let me know if there's anything else I should know or do, you know, like, but I'm totally there. I'm totally with God, I'm going to be in heaven and blah, 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 and so forth. And um, so this lawyer comes to Jesus and he goes, you know, uh, you know, what, it, what must I do to inherit life eternal? And, and let me just make one fast comment about this. And I heard this uh, wonderful from a rabbi. The goal is not to go to heaven when we die. The goal is to be on earth and bring heaven to earth so that when we die, we get ready to come back to earth to complete what Jesus started. Our physical death is a temporary phenomenon. Okay, just understand that. And also, it shows that uh, Jesus had to be bodily raised from the dead because no Jewish person would have accepted, let's remember some guy who's a disembodied spirit now. No Messiah who was killed and stayed dead would have been considered a successful Messiah. Okay? Many people claimed to be Messiah, even after Jesus. And they were killed. Anyway, anyway, so the, rab the lawyer wants to justify himself because he says, you know, what's, what's the main tenet of the Torah, the, the law of God? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and your neighbor as yourself, or in Greek it be rendered, your, love your neighbor as being yourself. And he said, who's my neighbor? And that's the trick question here. Who's, who's my neighbor? So Jesus the, brings the famous story that we all know of a guy who comes between Jerusalem and Jericho, and that ro road was pretty bad. People would get mugged and, and so forth. It's really a dangerous place to travel even during the day, let alone forget at night. And this poor guy does, in fact, get robbed, beaten so severely, left for dead on the road. And a priest comes by, and uh, to be fair to the priest, you have to know Jewish law, uh, that he looks at the guy, the guy looks dead, and if I go over there and touch him, 
I won't be allowed to serve in the temple. I won't be allowed to serve in the temple. So he leaves them there and goes on because his focus is to go serve in the temple. Next, the Levite is actually who somebody works at the, at, at the temple, uh, comes by and he sees the guy there. Probably gets the same kind of thing, or like I remember when we discussed this when I was in Sunday school as a kid, maybe he's afraid that this guy's faking it, and if I go over to see how he is, he's going to turn around and mug me, and his, his friends who are hiding there come beat me up, and so forth. Whatever the excuse is in his brain, whether it's that or I have to help serve at the temple, same kind of thing. Now, let me just add a little quick clarification. At that time, the priests were seen by the Jews as under the control of the Romans, which they were. They were operatives of the, of the Romans. P- Pontius Pilate had all the vestments of the priests. If the priests wanted to serve in the temple, do any services, sacrifices, they had to go to the Roman authorities in order to get their vestments. Clear sign, Rome saying, we're in control. We're in control. So priests were seen, uh, even a lot of times, with suspicion by the by the population, the general population of Jews. So anyway, and there would have been an irony in a person's mind hearing Jesus tell this story, that they're, they're too busy and they've got to go, uh, you know, to go temple. But anyway, so finally a Samaritan comes along, and we all know what a Samaritan was to uh, a Jewish person. They hated each other's guts. It was like the bloods and the crypts. When the Jews were coming back, after exile, the, the beginnings of the return after exile, they wanted to rebuild the temple. The, uh, the Samaritans were people that basically who were Jewish but intermarried with other people and so forth. So they were not, quote unquote, pure, ethnically speaking. And so the Jews kind of rejected them as far as, no, no, we, we alone have to build the temple. You can't because you're not, you know, you're not purely of Israel. So that got them into fights. And when they're rebuilding the temple, as the scripture points out in Nehemiah, uh, the workers had to keep their weapons by their side in case there was an attack while they're trying to rebuild the temple. And the animosity lingered even after the Romans took over and everything else. To this day, you go to Samaria at Passover. They actually do the sacrifices the way they used to back in the time of Christ. Their thing was, oh, hey, Jerusalem's not the place to worship. We got the joint. You know, we're the real thing. Each not liking the other, like I said. Each not liking the other. So Samaritan comes, and he sees the guy laying on the road, as we know, and it says, you know, let me just, you know, Jesus' own words here. Okay. He saw him and had pity. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine on them. Okay. Wine had alcohol, kills bacteria, as we know now. But the oil and the wine, for the early Christians, had a sacramental understanding. Healing, wine, the blood of Christ, those kinds of things playing in. And then he takes him uh, on his own animal and brings him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he takes out two denarii. Keep in mind, one denarii was uh, a daily wage for a laborer. Two denarii. And gives them to the innkeeper and says, take care of him that when I come back, I will repay you whatever you, you spend. Now, let me say what the word in is. Okay. Luke writes the story of Jesus being born, right? The Virgin Mary conceives by the Holy Spirit, and then the famous story of going to Bethlehem 
there's no room for them, you know, at the inn. And wrongly, we think of like a Motel 6 or something like that. What it really was, was very likely a relative's home. Katalima is the, is the word used in Greek. Katalima means the place where people can stay, guests can stay, like a guest room in a, in a home, in a home. So there's no room. So that's why stables were in the basement of homes in Bethlehem. We know this archaeologically and so forth. So Mary would have gone down with the other midwives to the basement in order to give birth to Jesus. Okay? The same word katalima comes at the end of the gospel when they have to have a place to go have what we now call the Last Supper. And it's the same word again, katalima. And, and Luke is making a very powerful point for the church. That the katalima is the place where the church gathers, like in the, in the Last Supper, in the meal, the Eucharistic meal. The place like where Jesus is born, this reality of a new humanity that actually comes about. It's not that it, Jesus is born, isn't it nice, let's make up Christmas cards and so forth. It is the fact that in Jesus, because the Holy Spirit conceives in her, what comes out with Jesus is the new humanity, humanity recreated, rebirthed. And then tie it back to the Last Supper and therefore to every Eucharistic liturgy. It is humanity rebirthed. It is new creation coming out among us. Now the word for in, though, in this story is a different word. It's a, a word, um, you know, there's, two, there's words in Greek, like the Greek word for uh, a hotel, a place where strangers can stay. It's called the xenodohion. But Luke uses this word, the baragothion, which means the place that welcomes everybody. Interesting word. And if you look at the, you can see this on the icon here of the Good Samaritan story, where Jesus is iconed as being, quote unquote, the Good Samaritan, the one that people don't like, the one that would be seen as an outcast and everything else. And he brings them to the inn. And in this icon, the inn Who's meeting Jesus and the wounded man at the inn is the apostles Peter and Paul. Some other icons will have Jesus bringing the man to the inn, and it's just a, you know, a guy coming out to greet Christ and take care of the man. But on top of the building of the quote-unquote inn are crosses. Clear implication, it's the church. And so it ties into the katalima. It ties into the place where there's new creation. That the place where people who are broken, busted up, hurt by themselves or life or whatever is going on, this is the place for healing. This is where the oil comes in. Oil that also symbolizes forgiveness, the Holy Spirit birthing, recreating. And then wine, the image of Christ's blood that would be transfused into us to be, to manifest in our own flesh, in our own brokenness, that new creation. And it's very potent because the point of the parable is not just be nice, you know, let's go open up a rotary club, etc., etc. It's about what is the church as an environment, as a community, as a sacramental communal reality. And the point even with the priest and the Levite is, it's, you know, worship is key because it defines who and what we are about. But worship alone without 
the, the, what stems from it, what births from it, I mean, look at this. The priest, because he's got to go to temple, he won't stop and help the guy. And I remember I was studying in Greece, they used to talk about the worship of worship. The worship of worship. People worship the church. You people thought the church, the church, the church. Never talk about Jesus. But the church, the church, the church. I like the church. I like the icons. I like the smells and the bells. I love that wonderful Greek-American or Russian-American country club feel. It's really nice. We're all there. We say a few little things. It feels ethnic and foreign. That's cool. Blah, blah, blah. Where is Christ? Where is the worship that births, that conceives the power of the Holy Spirit to birth each one of the people there like the bread and the wine? To be the Christ that goes out on the road and bring these people back into the inn. And that's the challenge of the parable. And that's why Paul's think today about what we invest in. What are we investing in? Time, money, every sociologist, psychologist will tell you where you see a person spend their time and their money shows what is priority to them. What is priority? If you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. And the one who sows bountifully will reap bountifully, Paul says. You must, you must make up your mind not to do this reluctantly under compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance that by always having enough of everything you may share abundantly in every good work. Notice that. God will give us abundantly in order to share it. Not to hog it for ourselves. The American dream. Mine, mine, mine. In fact, it's in the wedding service. It's in the wedding service. I don't know how many couples, whether they want it in Greek so they don't have to understand this and they're rather not obligated, or they just blow it off and they're trying to bring back some village customs that have no reality about what marriage is, like stamping on the foot of the groom and stupid things like that. It's, the prayer says, Lord, provide for this couple because the couple is going to be the church in miniature. Provide for them, Lord, every material good that they may provide for those who are in need. We're not being given stuff just so we can, you know, the dream the American dream, go traveling. And I'm like, not that those things are bad, but when it totally, totally removes what God intends for us. God doesn't care about how many trips to Europe we took. You know, I remember reading Claudette Colbert, <laughs> the famous actress from the you know, 40s and so forth, left each of her nephews 50 grand in her will. And what? She said in the middle, just go party. Just party. And that's last week would have been the, the Lazarus and the rich man. Who all he did was party. The poor man's right there at his door. He's, he's totally oblivious. He's having a good time. He's using, you know, and he's not a, this is, this is a very scary thing when you talk about judgment. He's not a bad guy. He doesn't kick the dog. He's not beating his wife. But look where he winds up. Because he neglected what God wanted to, him to do with the resources God gave him. But the point is, it's not just about us as individuals, it's also as a church. It's us as a church. And I read Matthew, which I love because we're celebrating today. And I think there's something very powerful 
about the fact of this tax collector who was, talk about a marginalized person, same thing like I said to the priest. Tax collectors worked for the Roman government. The Roman government was oppressive to the Jew the way the Nazis were, the way during World War II the Japanese were. If you hear horror stories about China and the Philippines and everything else because of that lousy Bushido code, which you treat people like they're nothing. And Matthew was seen as somebody who collaborated with that. And so when Jesus goes to his house later that night to celebrate, the man is ecstatic. And the Pharisees are sitting out there, you know, the nice people, the good people, the, you know, normal people, whatever that means. Why does your rabbi go in there? Mixing with people of ill repute, marginalized, people who are bad people. And Jesus hears it and comes out and he says, you know what? The healthy don't need the physician, only those who are ill. But he's being sarcastic because everyone needs the physician. Some people are just so delusional they don't get it like this poor lawyer who comes to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to inherit? Like, like I've fulfilled all the boxes. What's one box that may be lacking that I need to really inherit eternal life? And it doesn't work like that. So the, the, the truth is how are, and so I realized that this year, St. Matthew's is 55 years old. And nobody notices. I didn't notice until it hit me a few days ago. And what's the purpose of St. Matthew's being? And are we that still going to be that kind of place that is open to everyone? Are we still going to be the place that as a community, as a community, as a community, we're the presence of Christ? As a community, here you can taste of new creation. As a community, here is the oil of healing. As a community, here is the life of Christ being pumped into us even physically and a Jesus who goes out into the world and keeps hanging out with the marginalized, as well as regular, you know, he's got everybody. He's got families with kids, and he's got this, and he's that, but he's also there with all, I mean, I don't think we can imagine, and I've said this before, and I've challenged many parishes, and I've said, would Jesus be accepted if he brought his entourage with him into your church? Jesus, get those people out of here. They're the wrong color. They have the wrong background, bad background. They're not perfect like us, Jesus, you know. Jesus, you can stay. But see, the problem is, you can't reject the people Jesus is with and, and think you're going to have Jesus too. Like John says later, you can't say you love God who you can't see and, and not love your brother or sister who you can see. And as a church also then, not only because of what we do in the name of Christ and bringing people to Christ, but also do we reflect that that encourages the community around us to become more human and humane about the dignity and the worth of every human being no matter how broken, no matter how hurt they are. So this is the point of the parable.
Jesus will bring people to us that maybe some people won't like. If we want him to stop, then he'll leave too. But if we want him to stay, then he's going to keep doing it until he drives us crazy. <laughs> and I'm very proud of, 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 I don't want to say this in an arrogant way, but I'm very proud of the fact that this church, in spite of everything, in spite of pressures from people going, what are you, crazy having all those different kinds of people come to your church? The people who've hung in there. The people who say, wait a minute, this is, this is what we're about. St. Matthew would have been seen as a, a bum, or a, a rotten person. Well, that's who we're named after. And thank God. And he's praying, and he's praying for us. So the, the life of St. Matthew is about this. And, it, and I want to say this. For us to get a better feel that it's about an us. It's about an us. It's not about me. It's not about me. I'm on the upswing. This is, my foot thing's going to be resolved, hopefully with the antibiotic. If not, there's potentially a surgery, but, but it'll be resolved. But I'm not immortal. St. Matthew's has to be about St. Matthew's, not about Father Demetrius. So may God bless us as we remember what this church is, is, is for and, what, and really what St. Matthew's was praying for. Because I think you all know this in terms of the history. Uh, they bought a, an old Lutheran church downtown Reading, and they didn't know, because, which was good, so they wouldn't fight about what to name the church. It was already named St. Matthew. And back in the 19th century, St. Matthew's Lutheran church was the first Lutheran church, because before that they were doing services in German or in Swedish, it was the first Lutheran church to say, we have to reach out to the larger world, and they started doing services and everything in English. So I got this feeling our ex-tax collector has been praying for us. <laughs>